0: If you're just joining us, we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and uh, as you heard from the scripture reading, uh, that there are some reasons, it sounds like it surfaced that why you wouldn't want to study the book of Revelation, that sounds like scary stuff. In fact, I think that might be the scariest scripture reading you can have, is uh, reading the third angel's message. Boy, that's intimidating, it's powerful. What is going on here? And so we want to quickly review what we've been studying thus far, but it's it's so much we can only review in a very, very fast version. But if you go again back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1 sets the trajectory and the course for our study of the book of Revelation with the opening words, The revelation of whom? Jesus Christ. So whatever we read in this book, its ultimate aim is to reveal Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Things are going to happen in the future. That's prophecy. So this is a book of prophecy that unfolds and reveals Jesus Christ. And as we saw in those opening chapters, the first half about of the book of Revelation, it covers the history of the world and specifically of the church from the time of John, who is the author, to the time of Jesus' return at the second coming. And after we go through that time, we come to the middle and second half of the book and it starts focusing not on the time of John's life, but down towards the close of time, these closing events of earth's history, prelude to the second coming, these end time events take more and more of a full focus in the book of Revelation. Specifically, you see, as we saw last week we covered, Revelation 11 talks about a time of persecution during that time, Expanse from John's time till Jesus return of a 1,260-year period of persecution of God's people by a, a, a persecuting power that would come from within the church, 1,260 years. Revelation chapter 12 then comes back and talks about that time of persecution for 1,260 years. Then you turn the page and. Lo and behold, there's Revelation 13 that opens with a time of persecution of God's people for 1,260 years. Over and over, as it's focusing on these end times events, getting closer to the coming of Jesus, this particular time period of 1,260 years, which from our study we've covered begins in 538 A.D. and ends in 1798 A.D., would be a time of terrible persecution for God's people, and God's people would would suffer during that time, be persecuted. They would survive, but not necessarily thrive at that time. In fact, the language of Revelation 11, 12, and 13, when it talks about these persecuting times that the church would have to endure, is defensive in its posture. They're told to endure, to have patience, to hang on, to hold fast. But it's basically just kind of grit your teeth. The Lord will give you strength and just go through it, bear through it. But all of that changes in Revelation chapter 14. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Again, just giving a brief review and context for our study of the third angel's message. Revelation chapter 14 opens with the description of God's faithful people in spite of all the deceptions and persecutions that Satan is foisting on the world at this time. There is a group of people, symbolically represented with the 144,000, with all of uh, Uh, the characteristics described in the first five verses of Revelation 14. These are the ones who have not followed his lead, have frustrated the plans of the devil. And now it says in verse 5, and in their mouth was found no what? Deceit. So if there's not deceit, then there is truth. So God has his messengers of truth in the last days to counteract all of the falsehood and counterfeit that the devil has been working to establish for so long leading up to this point. We saw the first angel's message that comes out of their mouth in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And of course, having studied Revelation 13 just prior to Revelation 14, it's interesting that here there's no deceit in their mouth when, of course, it said in verse, uh, back in, in Revelation chapter 13, verse 14, he deceives those who dwell on the earth, right? So there's deception by the Antichrist and his helper there in Revelation 13, and now in Revelation 14, there's no deceit found in their mouth, and these people have a message for the whole earth. The same people that have been deceived by the, by the Antichrist's power in Revelation 13 are now having a counter Uh, proclamation from the other direction and what are they saying verse 7 saying with a loud voice fear god and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come again that gives us another time marker now we're past 1798 now we're at that 1844 hour of the investigative judgment beginning in heaven fear god and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and do what worship him In chapters 13 and 14, you see eight different calls to worship. Seven of them are appeals to worship the Antichrist, and there's one appeal to worship Jesus Christ right here in the first angel's message. So counter to all that's going on there, there's this God's representative saying, worship the true God, him who, and by the way, how do you know which is the true God? The one who can actually create, the creator, who worship him, who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. And, of course, we studied last Sabbath, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And now, in that context, we come to this third and final message of this group of people counteracting the counterfeits of Satan. We read in verse 9, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Again, you, would, you would be hard-pressed to find stronger, more direct language of warning in all of Scripture about this mark of the beast. And this is our third angel's message. What does it mean for us today? What is the significance? That's going to be the burden of our study, but before we do this study, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this revelation of Jesus Christ that we're currently studying. And Lord, in the context of these three angels' messages, and in particular, this third angel's message. Help us to see Jesus clearly today, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, think about the audacity of this, what Revelation 14 here describes. There's this group of people, again, symbolically represented by the 144,000. They follow the Lamb wherever they go. They have no deceit in their mouth, but they're speaking at a time and place in earth's history, where, according to Revelation 13 that just came before it, the whole world is wandering after the beast. Okay? So the whole world is wandering after the beast. The whole world is worshipping the beast in his image, yet these people stand up and loudly proclaim, Worship God! They're counteracting the counterfeit. The whole world is drunk with Babylon's deceptive wine, and yet these people come along and start proclaiming the truth that Babylon is fallen. It's just a house of cards. There's nothing it come out of her, my people. Right? And then we come to this one, this third angel's message. And in his appeal, directly opposite of what we saw in Revelation chapter thirteen. Again, let's go back to Revelation chapter thirteen to see what they're counteracting, what counterfeit is being counteracted in this third angel's message. Revelation chapter 13, of course, we saw a progression in Revelation 13. The dragon standing by the shore of the sea, and he sees the beast from the sea arise, which is just a retelling of the same power that we've seen over and over and over in Bible prophecy. And then there's this helper beast from the earth that we start with Revelation 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth and had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to what? Worship the first beast. So apparently the purpose of this second beast is to get people cause the earth to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Killed. Revelation 13, you see this image to the beast being established and through deception and persecution... People being caused, the whole world to be caused to worship this image to the beast. And what is the repercussion if you refuse to worship the image of the beast? Death. If you don't worship, you die. Then Revelation chapter 14, verse 9 comes along, the third angel's message, the direct counter to what we saw over there. Verse 9 again, Then the third angel follows, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image, or receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Basically, if you do worship the beast and his image, you're going to die. Well, this is a bit of a pickle. (laughs) I mean, that's a big theological term, a bit of a pickle, yes, but... The whole world is brought to a point of decision. By the way, it's interesting how the three angels' messages are basically laid out like a, any good evangelistic sermon should be laid out. You have the message, then you make sure it was clear, and then you ask for a decision. It's an appeal. It's an appeal. You see in, in Revelation chapter, I mean, the, in 14, in the first angel's message, They're starting to tell people the message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. They're informing them about this time of God's judgment. Then they start speaking these truths that demonstrate that Babylon is a house of cards, it's fallen, it's nothing there to it, It's it's a hollow shell, come out. And then the final test is set. I know you've heard this all of your life and for all the world around you. The whole world is wandering after the beast, but the truth is this. This one says, if you don't take the mark, you're going to die. This one says, if you do take the mark, you're going to die. Really, not much else you can say after that. (laughs) This way leads to death, or this way leads to death. They can't both be right, they're mutually exclusive. Either you do take the mark, or you don't take the mark. So, which one do you trust? Which one do you trust? This one, according to Scripture, the whole world is wandering after it. It's more popular. Uh, apparently, there's signs from heaven. It seems good. I'm guessing Satan's pretty good at his job of deception, right? He dresses up in his angel light. He can say the smooth things. He knows how to paint the picture. He knows how to address the senses. Sight, taste, touch, sense. Everything around you appeals to Worship the images of the beast. But there's this group of people over here standing saying, I know what you're hearing. I know what you're saying, but it's wrong. This is the truth. It's bringing the world to a point of decision. Of manifesting that decision. It's fascinating. Who will you trust with your life? Basically, you can trust the Antichrist. He says, take this and you'll be Okay. I'll protect you. Of course, if you don't, I'll kill you. So (laughs) it's better to take the mark. There's safety, there's security in the mark of the beast. The other side says, don't take the mark. There's only safety in not taking it. Who do you choose? Whose side are you going to be on? Now, fascinatingly enough, uh, to give you just a brief history... Very, very brief history, almost uh, too brief to mention, but it needs to be mentioned. In the late 1800s, in the 1888 discussion, if you're at all familiar with the Seventh Adventist Church, there was a great discussion about righteousness by faith, justification by faith in the Seventh Adventist Church. Uh, Some young gentlemen by the names of Jones and Wagner, uh, I believe inspired of the Lord, noticed that our preaching was very, very theoretical, very dry, and it needed to be centered and hinged on Jesus and his righteousness. And they brought this message out, and there was a discussion within the Seventh Adventist Church, it's a nice way to say it, Um, debate, uh, fight is probably not the right word, but it's close, Um, in the Seventh Adventist Church about the relation of Christ and his righteousness in these end-time event proclamations that we should read. And people would look at the third angel's message and say, look at this thing. It's warning people that if you take the mark of the beast, you're going to experience the wrath of God and destruction by fire. How would that have anything to do with the righteousness of Christ? What does this have to do with justification by faith at all? And you can find this statement in Last Day Events, page 199. You can also find it in a whole bunch of other places if you just type in the phrase, in verity. You'll find this statement. Several have written to me, Mrs. White writes, Inquiring, that is asking, if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. How is it possible what these guys are talking about, Jesus and faith in Jesus and justification by faith in Jesus, where does that fit in the third angel's message? If we're supposed to be proclaiming this message, how can we be proclaiming that message? How do they work together? Are they the same thing? If the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message, and I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. Absolutely true, that is the third angel's message. So let me ask you a question. When we read Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, do we see justification by faith? Well, I believe that we absolutely do. Because everything else is done over here by sight and by popularity and by fame and by coercion and deception. And the only thing to go on here... Is faith. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11. Let me, let me show you this biblical definition here and examples. Of course, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. It's the faith chapter in Scripture. By the way, it's not the only one that talks about faith, let's be clear, but <laughs> that's its primary objective, Hebrews chapter 11, is talk about faith and what it is. And it says in verse 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. It's the evidence of stuff that you don't see yet, but you still trust that it's there. Evidence of things not seen. For by it, that is that type of faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. And notice it starts off, interestingly enough, as an example, because the, I mean, the rest of Hebrews 11 unfolds as examples of this faith, what this faith looks like, out of theory, and what does it look like in practice. And the first example given is creation, interestingly enough. Look at verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. It goes back to this dichotomy versus what you can see, what you can't. Now, what's fascinating to me about how God created the heavens and the earth is that he did it without any human eyewitnesses. No one saw it. I mean... He didn't create Adam on day one and then he witnessed the creation process and he says, okay, now I believe it occurred because I have watched it. I don't know. He does all the creating process. Then at the very end, at the last day, he forms man in his image, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Man becomes a living being and Adam wakes up. <sighs> and as a sentient being, he automatically starts thinking, which hopefully is the difference between us and every other creature on the planet. We think. Please don't, don't, don't give that power away to anyone else. Don't let anyone else do your thinking for you. This is the God-given bit. Adam wakes up. He looks around. Huh. Neat. I'm sure he had better language than neat. And he notices all these things are there, and he notices for the first time, I am here. He has no memory of anything before that, right? This is his very first moment. And it's all full of stuff. And I'm sure perfect weather. There wasn't one drop of snow. Um, and And he looks around and there's Jesus Christ. Of course, the member of the God who executed the creation process. He says, hi. Again, I'm sure he had a better line than hi. But I just made you. Now, if you were to meet Adam, you know, a week or so after he was created, I'm guessing he wouldn't look like what you expect someone who's only been alive for a week to look like. When we see someone who's been alive for a week, they're usually about yay big, right? And this guy's yay big, full-grown man. And you ask him, how old are you? Where did you come from? And he's like, I came from God. I'm one week old. It seems literally, from our experience, laughable that that could be true. Yet it's fact. By the way, when when the Lord God made his helpmate for him, what did he do with Adam? Put him to sleep. He wakes up. Where did she come from? I made her too. No question asked. Thank you. (laughs) Good call. But it was all done by faith. And notice that's what it says here. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Now, if you leave your finger in Hebrews 11 and go back to Revelation chapter 14, you remember that first angel's message? Where it says in verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Revelation 14 verse 7, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who what? who made that one that we didn't see, but he did it. His word says so. we just trust him. Worship him who made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And of course, what is the memorial of that creation? The Sabbath day rest. Worship him by acknowledging his creatorship of a thing you didn't see. And it's not just because you weren't alive back then. Adam was alive just right after that, but he didn't see it either. But just because the word of God says so, It is true. Do you actually take the Lord at its word or not? Or do we say, I will believe it when I see scientific evidence that proves to me that... Slow down. Slow down. By the way, what evidence would you look for? I mean, I wouldn't expect Adam, like I said, he would be, by my understanding, by every scientific tool, a week old baby is not a full-grown man. That just doesn't happen. And I'm taking a wild guess that if you cut down some trees in the Garden of Eden, they'd have rings. If you carbon dated a rock, it would look real, real old. Does that mean that it is real, real old? No. Because God said so. Do you simply trust him that he can do what he says he did? Fascinating. Well, we go back to Hebrews 11 now, and the rest of the chapter unfolds as examples of people who, because of this faith to trust that God's word, trust what God says over what they see They do things that from outside perspective seems crazy. Okay, For instance, let's go down to verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness, which is according to what? Faith. Faith. Because he acted on God's word when all the evidence was against him, but just because God said so, he took it into action and built that ark. He said, that is righteousness by faith. Doing something by faith in God's word in contradiction to all the stuff. And by the way, I'm guessing that people thought Noah was nuts. Building a boat on dry land, preparing for rain that had never occurred. 120 years of doing it. But God's word said so, and he just trusted it, that it was true. Look at the next example, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. The common element of all these things is the trusting God enough to do what he says despite what you see. That is righteousness by faith, in a nutshell. Putting all the trust in God, regardless of Satan's deceptions, and uh, attempts on your life, persecution, whatever. And now go back to verse 6. Notice this statement. But without faith, it is impossible to do what? To please him. God is looking for people who will be faithful to just whatever he says, they go with it. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God, notice the logic of this, must believe that he is. If you're going to come to God, you must believe that there even is a God, right? And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That God will take care of you if you put your faith in him. That there's a reward for faithfulness that's provided only by God, but you need to act in faith. Faith is not just a statement of I hope, or I feel or it would be nice if it's actually believing enough to step out and act on what God's Word says in contradiction to what you might even see or hear, which is where Satan lives and breathes. He does deception around us in that way. By the way, also go back to Genesis chapter 3. Let me show you something fascinating. If Revelation 14 says, the third angel's message is the final appeal of, God's to, uh, of God to the people of this earth. The final test of faithfulness. It's interesting how strikingly similar it is to the very first test of faithfulness recorded in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Of course, this ties to Revelation. Remember, the dragon was cast out of heaven and is called that serpent of old who deceives the whole world. Here he is. Serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed what? Said. Has God indeed said? And it doesn't matter what comes after that. It's inserting that idea of doubt in God's word and trying to wean you off of what God says, and wean you on to what you see, right? Has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you what? Die. Die. It's a death sentence. If you eat of this, if you do this forbidden thing, You will die. That was the command. Simple and clear. Then, verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. One clear side, God's side says, do not eat the fruit. And if you do, you will die. Satan comes along and says, do eat the fruit. And don't worry about it. You won't die. Disobey and I'll take care of you. The fruit will be fine. No worries. God says, Obey, and I'll take care of you. Who are you going to trust? What God says or what Satan can make you see? Notice this. He starts to build his case. Again, verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows, the implication being God knows and you don't, that in the day you eat of it, And notice he doesn't just say, you will be just fine, it's just another tree. Doesn't say that. In the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You can toss off those shackles that God has held you in that... Knowledge he's withheld from you. You can see for yourself. You will be like God. You can determine for yourself what is right and wrong. You can know good from evil. It's not too much of a stretch, by the way, and the Spirit of Prophecy holds this true, that as he was saying these words, he was in the tree, touching what she has said you can't touch or you'll die. Eating. Now, let me ask you this question. Was the fruit itself poisonous? No. What made the fruit bad to eat? God said not to. That's the bottom line. But as far as good-looking food, good-for-you food, all that kind of stuff, it's food. Satan gets in the tree and he touches that which he said you won't touch. And he's like, that's interesting. I'm touching it. Still talking. By the way, if you notice, I'm talking. (laughs) Any other animals talk? Any other animals eat of this tree? I wonder if those two things go together. So think about this. If it's taken me, a lowly serpent, and turned it into this, might I say, very beautiful and convincing orator, what will it do for you? And he appeals to every sense that she has. In fact, the Bible holds this out. Look look at verse 6. So when the woman, what? Saw. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. So she starts evaluating it herself. Outside of what God had said, she says, I know what God said, but let's evaluate what I see. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was good for food, and it was pleasing to the eye, and then she adds that other thing, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, the very first man and woman were given dominion over this planet, And their fitness for that leadership position, that fitness for this world, was contingent on their faithfulness to God's word. As long as they were faithful and obedient, they were given that dominion. Go to Luke chapter 4. Let me show you something fascinating. Of all of Satan's lies and deceptions, which are plenty... One thing at least he doesn't do is try to claim that he created this world. He doesn't claim ownership of the world as a rightful thing that he built. Look, he even explains it to Jesus. Look at this. In the temptation experience in the wilderness, look what Satan says to Jesus. Chapter 4 of the book of Luke, starting with verse 5. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to them, all this authority I will give to you and their glory, for this has been what? Delivered to me. I didn't build it. In fact, the jig is up. You're the creator. You know, right? But the one you put in charge gave me the keys. And now I'm going to, just free of charge, give him, well, well almost free. Just have to do one thing. What's that one thing he wants? Worship. For this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. This issue of worship and obedience to what God says, despite of all what you see, taste, touch, feel, sense at all, that loyalty to God's word... Which, of course, what was Jesus' rebuttal to every temptation of Satan? It is what? Written. That is the question at the end time. The final test of faith bears this striking resemblance to that first test of faith. You have the word of Christ, the creator, against the word of that of Satan, the fallen creature. And just as the first test demonstrated whether we were fit for this world, the final test demonstrates whether we'll be fit for the world to come. Because let me tell you something, folks. Even after the sin problem is resolved, righteousness will still be by faith in the Word of God. Righteousness has always been by faith. We're justified by faith, not by our own merits. We are all creatures, and God will still be our creator. And when he says something, he expects us to simply believe him because it's true, because he said it. When this great controversy is finished, there will not be a second controversy. It will not happen again. And the only way to guarantee that that will happen is to have a people who will learn in this life to trust God no matter what. Just whatever he says, we'll go with it. Our number one issue is not what tastes good, what seems good, not what everybody else thinks, not what's most popular, but what is right according to God's word. That's the bottom line issue. Thus, the 144,000 are described as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever He goes is where I'm going. And that is righteousness by faith. And by the way, go back to Revelation 14 now as we come to our close. Revelation chapter 14 again. After this strong appeal, which by the way, don't you love the fact that it's a choice? In Revelation 13, he tries to trick people, deceive them, and then force people through persecution. Revelation 14, he just simply says, choose. And after we read in verse 11, "In the smoke of their torment forever and ever, and they had no rest day or night, who worshiped the beast in his image, who never receives the mark of his name, the implication is, don't take the mark. <laughs> verse 12 records, here is the patience of the saints... Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Friends, in these last days of Earth's history, we will be, all of us, not just as Christians, not just as seven das, but the whole world will be brought to a point of decision. Do you trust what God's word says, or do you trust the deceptions that Satan sets up for you to see? Will you have will you be justified by faith? in a thing that you can't see, but just because he says so, you trust him? Or will you say, I can't trust that God I can't see. I need to take the mark of the beast in order to be safe. Who are you going to put your trust in is the ultimate question at the end time. And we are to be the messengers of that, that final warning to the world. So I appeal to you. Choose for yourself. And then become a messenger for other people to have that choice. Again, you see the outline of those three angels' messages. It's like a sermon itself. It gives the information. It checks for understanding. And then it asks for a decision to be made. Who are you going to trust with your life? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons,